Well, good morning again. Please open with me in your copy of the scripture to Daniel chapter 11. Find ourselves in the middle of a three-part section. It's extraordinarily challenging. It's another passage where you think, man, if, if you are passing through as a visitor, welcome. But man, did you choose a Sunday uh, to show up on. This is a monster chapter. It's hard to break up, though, because it's just kind of one complete thought. Really, even the whole chapter isn't the complete thought, because chapter 12 is a part of it. It just presents a lot of challenges in the preaching task. So I'm going to move smoothly here, but I'm going to move at a fairly quick, or a, a pretty healthy clip. So just listen very quickly. Okay? Um, last time we talked about how chapter 10 was an introduction to this section, but that uh, introduction that doesn't contain the prophetic content it discusses. So if you look back at chapter 10, verse 1, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, whose name, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict, or it was about a great conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. And then we go down to 11.2 after the intro and after the appearance of this terrifying man um, and this messenger. And, and he finally says in verse 2, the angelic messenger, and now I will show you the truth. And then the rest of 11 and 12 is the content of what was discussed in chapter 10, verse 1. And chapter 11 is going to be a verbal vision much like chapter 9, and not a symbolic visionary vision like chapters 7 with the beasts and chapter 8 with the, with the goat and the ram. So I understand that this is a ton of detail here, so what I'm going to do is put a cheat sheet up for you uh, up on the screen as I tell you the history, particularly the history of verses 2 through 20, or what I'm calling the War of Northern and Southern aggression. Again, you see this chart that I've carefully crafted for you by taking a screenshot. Um, and so what I would like to do is point out that you're going to have the Ptolemies in the south, and you're going to have the Seleucids in the north. That's two of the four divisions of Alexander the Great's kingdom. We discussed that in chapter 8. And I'm going to keep this up here as I walk through the history, keeping one point in mind. And this is going to be, as, this is going to be part of the application right here. Only a great God could foreknow and bring to pass what we are about to look at. Only a great, great God, a sovereign God, a, a God with perfect knowledge could foreknow and bring to pass what we're about to read. In fact, the level of historical detail here is so great, but it's also so accurate that it's caused liberal scholarship on the book of Daniel to want to date it in the second century after all these things already happened because they say, well, no one could possibly know. No one could have possibly known what we're about to read before it actually happened, to which I say again, God could. And to which I said the Jews understood it as predictive prophecy and even found fulfillment of some of the things Daniel said in the second century. And that would be very odd if they all knew it was written after it all happened. Okay. No one will remember all of this. I would say if you're a note taker, and at least on this section, don't even try taking notes. Don't even do it. Just listen to me tell you the story with one eye on the chart and one eye on the text. I'm not going to read every verse because we would never make it few, uh, because we'd never make it through, and the text has already been read. We'll interact with a lot of it, but I'm certainly not going to read every verse again. So here we go. After the heavenly messenger of chapter sin, uh, chapter 10. Uh, says that Michael contends at his side in cosmic battle. 
And then verse 1 of 11, as they were dealing with the transition in the first year of Darius, he actually stood up to confirm Michael. That's what verse 1 is. It's not Daniel making a random comment. It's the angel continuing on, which is why that's a very strange chapter break. Um, He says in verse 2, that behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Three further kings would arise after Cyrus. Uh, and then you have the fourth. That's a Hebraism for putting the emphasis on the last kind of in a series. And for, the fourth king from Cyrus was Xerxes, also known as Ahasuerus, or the king from the book of Esther. Persian king in Esther. Says he'll be rich and grow strong, and that's exactly what he did. He grew extremely rich, and he used his riches to build an enormous army that regrettably encountered the Greek navy at the Battle of Salamis in 480 BC, which showed that numbers don't necessarily equate to victory because he was absolutely mauled and ran back to Persia. And subsequently there arose a great king in Greece. See that in the text. We've already seen this king in Daniel, and it is none other than Alexander the Great, who despite his incredible reign, his unbelievable dominance, Uh, It was a super, super uh, short reign because it was uh, cut short by his untimely death. That's what we read about in 3 and 4. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken. That's Alexander. The kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven. Same language from chapter 8. When we're explicitly told... This is the king of Greece, Alexander. Again, if you haven't been here, this is going to be a little, little tough. You're going to have to trust me at some places. As soon as he has risen, has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, because it goes to his four generals, nor according to authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Recall that after, shortly after Alexander died, his kingdom was split up into four kingdoms or sub-kingdoms. One in Greece, Macedonia, the other in Thrace, Asia Minor, Syria, Mesopotamia, and the south down there in Egypt. And the passage is going to zoom in on the conflicts between the northern and the southern rulers that you see depicted here. We read verse 5, Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. As you might remember from chapter 8, Ptolemy is the general who was appointed over the south in Egypt, and he grew to be very strong. But as it turned out, another general who had initially been set over Babylonia but actually lost it, fled to Ptolemy for help. Ptolemy appointed him a general in his army, and as a result, he was actually able to take back the region that he had lost. And this prince of Ptolemy was Seleucus. His name was Seleucus. Verse 6 reminds us that even though we're getting a detailed history here, this is nevertheless a summary. Listen to the language. After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement, but she shall not retain the strength of her arm. And he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up in her attendance, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. What's going on here? Here we move forward to Ptolemy II, the second king in the south, and two kings in the north, to Antiochus. The second, Ptolemy, 40, very long reign, about 40 years, 
equivalent to two Antiochuses in this case. We're going forward to Antiochus II. And in an effort at strategic diplomacy, here's what happened. Ptolemy II gave his daughter in marriage to Antiochus II with an agreement that uh, her son would sit on Antiochus's throne. That was kind of the agreement. But here was the problem. Antiochus, there's a slight point of tension. Antiochus was already married. He's already married. Not to be stymied by something as inconvenient as marriage, however, he divorced his wife. Her name was Laodicea. He thought, well, too bad for my marriage. He divorced this woman. And he married Berenice, the daughter of Ptolemy II, okay, to make this happen. Until Ptolemy II died. And then what do you think happened? Well, no more accountability. Deals off. He divorced Berenice and went right back to Laodicea. And Laodicea, possibly fearing he might go back to Berenice again, tried to have him poisoned, and that may or may not have uh, resulted in his death, but she certainly encouraged her son, Seleucus, to execute Berenice and her son so that there would be a clear path to the throne. The intrigue doesn't stop. Verse 7, And from a, a branch from her roots, Berenice's roots, one shall arise in his place. One shall arise in his place, that is Ptolemy II's place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and shall deal with them and shall prevail. The branch from her roots that arises in the place of Ptolemy II is her brother, Ptolemy III, who goes into the north and absolutely crushes Seleucus II with military strength, plunders their temples, plunders their fortresses, and executes Laodicea because she murdered his sister. That is exactly what happened. After a while, that was so devastating, the Ptolemies kind of kept to themselves down there in Egypt for a time. However, it's only for a time. There's going to be, there are so many buts in this passage that it sticks out. There's always a but. Seleucus would regain his power in a few years and try to march on Egypt, verse 9. But he would be utterly defeated and he would have to go back to the north. His sons, verse 10, would carry on the conflict with the south, his sons being Seleucus III and Antiochus III, also known as Antiochus the Great. Um, Ptolemy was outraged by the large numbers Antiochus III was bringing into his region, and so he marched out to reach. Uh, to, to meet, excuse me, Antiochus. This is Ptolemy the Fourth now, and he actually crushed the multitude that Antiochus had assembled. On some people's reckoning, seventy thousand infantry alone. He crushed them. He wiped them out. And honestly, at least as far as I can put together the history, Ptolemy, after that victory, was really set to take dominion of the whole region, but. He kind of sat back on his laurels. He didn't really do anything, whether through lavish lifestyle or pride. He just kind of went home and, and just really ended up being the next in a series of conflicts, which inevitably occurs, verse 13, when Antiochus III's forces regroup and he attacks Egypt. He attacks Egypt in verse 14. But what's interesting here is that those, for, uh, uh, those who were part of the at least in one sense, consider Jews, certain Jews here called violent or transgressors, they actually joined in the attack because they thought they were fulfilling prophecy, a very thing, a very dangerous thing. 
to do. By the way, they thought, we are the ones who are supposed to go make this happen, and they actually joined in, and it was great timing. Here's why. Ptolemy IV had just died. This is the only water bottles I had left, by the way, like the sports version, so feels very awkward, looks awkward, is awkward. Just, let's just ride with it, okay? Uh, Ptolemy IV had just died, and, uh, uh, and so and Ptolemy V was only four years old. So there was no proper king. He was, he was the titular king, right? He was the king in title, but he wasn't actually doing anything with it. And Egypt's best generals and troops, that's even the language of the text, went out to do battle in the provinces, the satellite states, against Antiochus. But he did bring siege works, and he, they were not able to withstand him this time. He won, and as a result, the land of Israel, in verse 16, called the glorious land, passed into Seleucid control. We read in verse 17, we read in verse 17 that he shall set his face to come with strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. What is this? This is now Antiochus III who gives his daughter Cleopatra, his daughter Cleopatra, in marriage to Ptolemy V in order to secure a stronghold in the region. But he didn't expect one thing. And that is, Cleopatra was far more enamored with her young husband than she was with her dad. And she developed pro-Egyptian sentiments, and so the whole plan went kaput. What did Antiochus do instead? He turned his attention towards the coastland. The Mediterranean coastland is what that's referring to. He had some success in conquering, but Rome commanded him to stay out of Greece. Stay out of Greece. And so what did he do? He invaded Greece. And probably not understanding what part of do not invade Greece, Antiochus III did not understand, Rome crushed his forces at Thermopylae and then chased him all the way back into Asia Minor and destroyed him again the battle of Ma well at Magnesia. And uh, they, they put a huge uh, debt on his shoulders to be paid as tribute to Rome as a punishment for what he had done, which led to his temptation to rob temples, which was a big thing back in the day if you were looking for some money because temples had money in them. And in the course of robbing one such temple in order to try to get money to pay this huge debt to Rome, he was assassinated by a zealot. And while he might have bit the dust, Rome still wanted their money. Okay? And so what happened? His son, Seleucus IV, stole a page at a dad's book. And he attempted to loot the temple in Jerusalem. But for reasons that aren't entirely clear, this is verse 20, including one claim of him having a terrifying vision and turning back, he was unsuccessful, and he died ultimately not in anger or in battle, but he was actually poisoned. One commentator summarizes our story, I think, really well thus far. This is what he says. He says, on one level, it is the continual story of wars and rumors of wars as one human ruler and empire after another seeks to gain power by cunning or force. Yet, though the tide and the affairs of men comes in and goes out, in the end, it accomplishes precisely nothing. The balance of power in earthly politics may shift, but it never comes to a permanent rest. On the one hand, therefore, Daniel 11 shows us the fallen world pursuing the wind and finding it elusive. 
What do powers and politics gain for all their toil? Nothing. Nothing, he says. It's well said there. Who's next? Someone with whom we are already familiar. This figure takes up 15 verses all by himself. And notice, he is not introduced like the king's in the previous section, and the king in verse 36. But in verse uh, 21, he is introduced as someone to whom royal majesty has not been given. Has not been given. He is a despised, contemptible man, it says, and he is none other than, by almost all accounts, Antiochus IV. Just the next Antiochus in the line, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes, the terrorizer of God's people from chapter 8. And if you forgot about that, you're going to have to go back and watch that sermon because I don't have time to sketch the whole thing. Again, he weasels his way into a position that was supposed to go to his nephew, Demetrius, who was out of town, you might say. He said, I'm going to sit in this region, kind of be the vice regent, and he ends up just staying there. He ends up making and breaking multiple covenants, treaties with certain regional powers, and in the spirit of those who went before him, he was trying to bring the fight to Egypt's door to the south, and two of those conquests are actually depicted in this section. The first one resulted in a victory uh, and uh, a mutually distrusting relationship, an alliance between Antiochus and Ptolemy VI, and that's what we read in 26 and 27. Even those who eat his food shall break him. That's talking about the king of the south. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. That's, that is Ptolemy VI getting wiped out there by Antiochus. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away. Many shall uh, fall down slain. And as for the two kings... Their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail. For the end is yet to be at the time appointed. They enter into this alliance treaty under finally, uh, under the guise of finally putting all of this conflict to rest. Wouldn't it be so nice if we could end this age-old struggle here? Neither one of them had any intention of doing that, by the way. But they entered into it. Daniel gives a, gets a divine reason here for why it's not successful, because the, it's not the appointed time yet. It's not time for that tension to be over. It's going to continue to serve a larger purpose, and that's exactly what it does. Antiochus treks homeward, back north, but he stretches his hand out against the Holy Covenant here, the people of God representing the Jews, partially because they had celebrated a rumor that he died. They heard he died, they started cheering, yes, this terrorizer, but actually he didn't die. He didn't die. He robs an incredible sum of money from the temple. I also talked about that in chapter 8. And then he returns back to Egypt on a subsequent visit. But as verse 29 reminds us, it shall not be this time as it was before. Why is that? Because when he gets there, Rome turns him back. And he says, well, and as it's come down in the history, multiple sources, it goes and went something like this. You're going to get out of here. Well, I need, to, I need to take counsel with my counselors and this and that. And the general took his staff, his stick, and drew a circle around Antiochus 
the fourth in the sand and said, actually, you'll decide before you step out of that circle. And so he was like, uh, uh, okay, I guess we're going home. And that's exactly what he did. He was humiliated. He was enraged. And what did he do? What he did was on the way back through Jerusalem, he engages in this murderous slaughter of Jews on the Sabbath. He dedicates the temple to Zeus. He sacrifices swine on it. He introduces a paganization program, making it illegal to circumcise children, death penalty if you were caught doing so. Truly, uh, truly horrible. Truly horrible. Again, back in chapter 8, I say a little bit more about that. I'm not going to rehash the whole thing. And in fact, we read very similar language in chapter 8. Look at verse 31 with me. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. That's chapter 8, verse 11. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. In chapter 8, it's the transgression that makes desolate. But you hear we're getting a different angle on the same event. And it says that he will gladly seduce compromisers, but that the faithful will remain faithful. Verse 32, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. We read that even in those days, some of the wise will stumble. Why though? Some of the wise will stumble. Why? Verse 35, so that they may be refined, purified and made white till the time of the end. For it still awaits the appointed time. The appointed time there being the same time in chapter 8. The time when this devastation of the Jewish people, the taking away of sacrifices by, by Antiochus, would end. And it ends upon his death. And that's when they reinstitute temple sacrifices, which is why you have a functioning temple system when Jesus comes on the scene, because it had been restored. We've covered a lot of ground. I did that quickly. I understand but here's the thing, the, you can bicker about some of the details as scholars like to do, but the vast majority of this is actually remarkably straightforward and largely agreed upon facts of history. There's some quibbling about these details, but again, it's so accurate that it would cause people to say, no one could have written these things when Daniel was supposed to have been written. That's how accurate it played out in history. So it's not Christian special pleading saying some, it's just some torturous interpretation of history like a conspiracy theory. No, it is scholars, Christian, some of them, and mostly non-Christian or very, very liberal, super liberal Christian scholarship saying, mm, this is better in the second century after all this stuff has already happened, which again, I think just comes out of a very poor and low view of the scripture and the inspiration of the Bible. But Largely, this depicts history as it is, has been confirmed and is largely agreed upon in a straightforward kind of a way. All of that straightforwardness changes, however, in verse 36 to the end of the chapter, where things become extremely difficult. Let's read verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. Excuse me. For what is decreed shall be done. What is decreed shall be done. As we are simply reading along, 
we are no doubt going to assume that the author is simply continuing on in describing the saga with Antiochus Epiphanes. That's what it sounds like, right? I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't that be what you assumed, that he was just continuing on? The problem is there are very, very good reasons to believe that is not the case. That we are not simply continuing on and that we are talking about a new figure. But you shouldn't believe that just because I say it. So let me seek to persuade you that that is the case. First is that this figure is called a king. Remember, made very explicit that Antiochus was one to whom royal majesty had not been given. The first set of folks are introduced as kings in this chapter. We have a king here. Antiochus, someone who, they, it seems like they go out of the way to say Antiochus, they, they, they don't call him a king. But more importantly, the details thus far, as I said, have lined up with the historical activity of the figures depicted, including Antiochus. But the challenge is that verses 36 through 45 don't line up with Antiochus at all. Like, not even close. Antiochus did not, for example, pay no attention to the God of his fathers or any other gods, verse 37. He's the one who dedicated the temple to Zeus. The, the, the king of the south, Ptolemy VI, did not rush upon him and attack him, verse 40. Didn't happen. Antiochus never had mastery over uh, Egypt or the, any of the Egyptian satellite states. Didn't happen. It also doesn't match his death in verse 45. Antiochus dies in Persia, not Israel. So there's good reason to believe that what's being discussed here, or who is being discussed here rather, is not Antiochus Epiphanes. Is not Antiochus Epiphanes. And the vast majority of scholars of, all, of many different stripes agree on this point because of how different and how much of a shift it is in the description. Who, who is it then? Who is it? There's been a lot of suggestions, as you might imagine. Calvin suggested the Roman Empire. Mohammed has been a suggestion. The papacy. Herod the Great uh, from the Gospels has been a suggestion. And then the little horn from Daniel chapter 7, the final man of lawlessness, the full and final expression of Antiochus, this abomination that caused causes desolation. Um, that, that's who this is describing. And that is the view that I hold. Let me tell you why. Let me tell you why. I'm going to take it as assumed that I've given good reason to believe we're talking about someone that is not Antiochus Epiphanes. But I'm going to suggest that we're, we are hearing about someone who is described in very similar language because there is a connection between the two. Connection is the same connection between the little horn of Daniel chapter 8 and the little horn of Daniel chapter 7. One is a type. One is the fulfillment. One is the full and final fulfillment. This is an end-time Antiochus, you might say. Once we establish that we're not talking about Antiochus, the description seems to uh, go far beyond anything that we're aware of from any king. He shall magnify, exalt himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is 
accomplished. It's not clear that there's been any king, any kind of ruler uh, in history that has made those kinds of particular moves or claims. And again, initially it does sound like Antiochus, the language from chapter 8. But I've given, again, I think, I've given reasons following the vast majority of scholars thinking that this isn't Antiochus, but this is someone who is cast in his mold. This is Antiochus, a type. Anti-type, full and final expression and fulfillment of that in this end-time man of lawlessness. This language is eerily similar, by the way, to Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, describing that man of lawlessness. He says he will oppose and exalt himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. It lines up with what we hear the little horn say in Daniel chapter 7. He will speak words against the Most High. Okay? And so I think this is being described in language. It's closely related to Antiochus, but because he is a type that finds its fulfillment later. Just like the temple in the Old Testament finds its fulfillment in God dwelling with his people, the Holy Spirit, the church, and then ultimately the new heavens and new earth, it points us forward to something. That's what Antiochus points us to an abomination of desolation that serves as a historical figure that points us forward to something that is a fuller and more final expression of it. Second point is this. Second point is this. I'm going to return to this in a second. I don't think it refers to any past figure because it does mention Moab. It mentions Moab who was delivered out of this king's hand along with Ammon and Edom in verse 31. And here's the thing. Moab did not exist at the time of Herod. Did not exist at the time of the Roman Empire. Certainly did not exist. The papacy, any of that. And that's because Moab, as a people and a nation, were wiped off the pages of history in the Persian period. They just disappear from the pages of history. Moab is just not there, which might make you think that we are... That, that, that if we're not referencing geopolitical Moab, you might think that something categorically different is going on with the descriptions here. And maybe we're supposed to be thinking about something slightly different than the than straightforward history that is bygone. How is it plausible to think it's describing an even fur- further future event? That's a great question. Just hold that thought. I'm going to get there. Okay. The third reason for thinking this is a future a leader, future king, is that we should likely be expecting a jump to the end of days because of how the whole vision has been prefaced. Recall from chapter 10, the angel tells Daniel in verse 14 that he has come to tell what is going to happen to your people in the latter days. In the latter days. Latter days is a well-known eschatological phrase, an end-time In fact, it's used in Daniel chapter 2. When Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, God has showed you what's going to happen in the latter days. And do you remember what the very end of that vision is? It's a kingdom that is set up and never passes away. Latter days. If you you turn two pages in your Bible, you get to Hosea chapter 3. And in Hosea's program there, and it might be the program for the whole minor prophets, scholars debate, he is talking about the latter days as well. So so here's here's the... Here's why that matters. The latter days. Somewhere between verse 35, Antiochus Epiphanes, who, and this is critical, ruled before Christ even came to establish the kingdom. All right, Sometime between 
verse 35 and the end of the book, we fast forward to last things. We fast forward to last things. And I'm suggesting the switch occurs at verse 36, where we encounter this final king who opposes the king of king and God of gods for a decreed period of time. Finally, though, let me mention the most important thing. Although they differ on what Daniel 12, 1 through 3 means, the vast majority of scholars agree that the at that time of 12 coincides with the at the time of the end in verse 40. Look at verse 40 in Daniel chapter 11. At the time of the end, you're going to hear about the king of the south attacking him, but skip down to, to chapter 12, and you see this phrase, at that time. You're asking, what, what time? What time? Well, at the time that was what, what was just depicted is happening. This is happening. In other words, uh, chapter 12, what happens there in chapter 12, 1 through 3, happens roughly around the same time as this end-time king is doing his uh, uh, engagement. Why does that matter? Well, let's look at verse, let's, let's dip into next sermon and just look at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It might help us out with time frame. At that time shall arise, Michael, or stand aside, Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people. We read about him in chapter 10. And there shall be a time of trouble such as there never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. If these two times coincide, and this is all happens as part of one culminating sequence, then what I will argue for next time, and most of you don't need an argument because it sounds obvious, this is talking about final judgment and resurrection, what it means here is the king depicted is an end-time king. Okay, remember, forget the chapter breaks. Remember, those are not actually there. This is all one huge section. This seems to be an end time king because what he is doing happens at that time. And at that time from Daniel chapter 12 is final judgment and resurrection. This is something that is a sequence of events situated at the very end, the latter days, and therefore does not refer to someone in the first century or something that has already happened. Okay, what about all these details, though? What on earth do you make about all these details in verses 36 through 45? Let me make a few suggestions and draw a few tentative conclusions as we try to think well at admittedly a super, super difficult passage here. First is that after recognizing a shift to an end-time ruler, so my case is kind of building on itself at this point, I understand, an end-time ruler, leader, blasphemer, who is the full and final expression of Antiochus, it's very likely that the constant conflict between the north and the south in this passage that the text has presented us thus far, uh, with Antiochus, by the way, coming from the north, points us forward to what we see in this final section. And this is this final eschatological conflict between this man depicted as the end-time Antiochus from Syria and the nations allied with him, and then a king depicted as the end-time opposer of Antiochus and the nations uh, allied with him. And so it, it seems to paint a picture of a man who is not just a wily churchman or a kind of a deceptive theologian. That doesn't seem to be, but someone who in the spirit of chapter 10 is an international influencer. 
He's a mobilizer. He's a warmonger. And that's the idea, by the way, of the God of fortresses. If you go back and search in Greco-Roman thought for God of fortresses, there isn't a God of fortresses. People, who is the God of fortresses? Everyone stumbles over themselves. Who is this? What's likely is a personification of war. He rejects God. What does he do? He's a conqueror. And that's going to come back into the, the picture in just a little bit here. There will be nations and forces who resist this man and his allied nations. And there's nothing to lead us to conclude, by the way, whatsoever, that these are like Christian nations or something like that. That's not it. Okay, this, is, this isn't a, that, that Egypt is the church or that these nations are Christian. That's not it. It's saying that there is going to be real international conflict. Just like we saw in Daniel chapter 10. There's going to be, and, and throughout this passage, there's going, the, the end time man of lawlessness is going to bring about genuine international conflict. Of course, we already see a ton of international conflict, but it's going to be tangible. It's not something that's going to happen ultimately that is spiritualized. It's not something that is, it's not something that's going to happen at a theology conference, some weirdo at Bethel Church saying something odd. This is going to be something that plays out, okay? That plays out in nations and in parliaments and on battlefields or in the air, as the case may be. It will involve international conflict. The second is to notice the compelling reference to these three nations that are spared there in verse 31. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. I already mentioned that Moab was wiped off the pages of history. Why, why should we think that this is pointing us forward to something. We're not talking about geopolitical Moab that doesn't exist. Why should we think it's talking about an end-time Moab, Ammonites, Edom of sorts? Fascinatingly, Edom, Moab, and the Ammonites were the nations that uniquely despised God's people. Okay, so I've talked about Babylon as kind of the typical opposer of God's people, the theological northerner. But when you read the Old Testament, Babylon doesn't have anything out for Israel personally. Israel is just the, the folks who got to go in their imperialism project. They're just the next folks to go. These people hated Israel. They didn't have the capability of conquering Israel, but for them it was personal on account of common ancestry. Common ancestry, oh yes. Do you remember? Do you remember? Moab and the Ammonites, both originating from an incestual relationship with Lot. Between Lot and his daughters, they got him drunk, took him to bed. Moabites, Ammonites. What about, what about Edom? It's the descendants of who? Esau. Esau. Who stole Esau's birthright? It was Jacob or Israel. Thieves. There's personal animosity here. They could claim Abraham, Abraham as father, but they weren't part of the promise. So these nations opposed Israel not because they wanted more land, because they had a, here it is, 
they had a genuine connection with God's people, but they weren't recipients of the promise and therefore weren't actually God's people. They had some kind of claim to connection, but it wasn't a real one. And when people are sinking the weight, sinking beneath the weight of this end time Antiochus, he is all too happy to spare those with an empty claim to being God's people, but who actually hate God's people. And even feel personally and nationally slighted by him. And the takeaway here is the leader, this whoever this is, will work not only at the level of uh, uh, nations and kingdoms, but will weaponize those who personally despise God's people in order to bring about decreed persecution and suffering. Like one final observation. This final observation takes into account a very strange reality in this passage. I want you to feel the strangeness with me. This is a passage about the future of God's people. That's how it's been prefaced. And what's odd about chapter 11 is that God's people play almost no role in it. The whole story is about the feud between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. That's where all the action is. And even when we see the persecution of God's people under Antiochus, it's still in the context of a larger story of Antiochus going down to Egypt and coming back. And kind of like the Israelites get in the way. But, but they're not really the main story. And that doesn't change here in the last section. That's what's so bizarre. It's not like it says, you know, in the final king here, he won't go down to Egypt. He'll stop in the middle and he'll battle God's people at Armageddon. Like, that's just not what it says. Instead, we get a rehash, a picturesque rehash of the same conflict between the north and the south. Certainly, Egypt never represents God's people in Scripture and, if, and it even says that they won't, they'll not escape. Verse 41 is the only verse that seems to describe many of the saints being killed as a part of the conquest, but then the narrative just continues. He gets alarmed by news from afar. Heads out to war again. Of course he would. And we're told he meets his end with no one to help him, but we aren't even given details exactly of how that happens. It's odd. It's odd that a story about the latter days for your people, Daniel, makes very little explicit reference actually to your people at all. What, what do we make of this? We're trying to listen well. You know, we can't be certain, but it certainly seems as though the end time persecution of God's people will really be an aspect of a larger program. And the program for this man of lawlessness is to rule and have dominion over creation as he worships the God of fortresses and is given help, it says, by a foreign God. Just like the power of the man of lawlessness comes from 2 Thessalonians 2, the activity of Satan. 
in setting himself up above all gods or so-called gods, he is make he will make an effort. The picture here is someone who's making an effort to be Lord of the nations. And God's weak jars of clay are persecuted, yes, but the larger scheme here is a plot for the throne. People of God are caught up in as faithful subjects, yes, but dominion and being worshipped is the end game here, not simply dead Christians. This man's goal is dominion and ruling the nations and being worshipped and exalting himself. Persecution of the faithful, simply an effect of that. Collateral damage, you might say. Very real. Very intentional, but not the end in itself. So what does that mean for us in conclusion then? It means that you and I, our children, and their children's children must be on guard, not primarily for political and cultural powers who run on explicit platforms of we are going to persecute Christians. That's, that's, that's not it. Still might want to watch out for those people, but that's not this picture. This is, this is a picture of someone who, disregarding God's truth, and yet appearing wise and powerful, advance their agenda, and subtly claim for themselves through smooth words, humility, powerful exploits in the name of truth, what only belongs to Christ. Who is the only Lord of the nations. The picture of this man will not be someone who everyone can spot just effortlessly. And you'll see it all over. Oh look, here's this guy. Looks like Jafar out of Aladdin. We know, we know it's you. And lightning is shooting out of his fingertips like the dude in Star Wars. Palpatine. This is the end time man. That's not the picture. He will be a very attractive. He will have a very attractive program. He will say things that sound really good. He might say a lot of true things theologically. But it will be in order to advance his own agenda to be Lord of the nations. It will be to claim for himself what only rightly belongs to God. And so we must be watchful. He will set himself up against Christ, a Christ who has come, who's died, who's risen, who is ruling, and yet will reign. May we be watchful, and may God have mercy. Let's pray. God, as we approach texts like these with great humility and feel our own finiteness, we pray that as a corollary, we would experience, feel, grasp to any extent that we can your glory and your mightiness, how you have authored each step of the history we inhabit and because of that, we can have hope in the promises of redemption. God, we confess our own apathy in certain cases, our own excuses, our own laziness to pursue truth, to love well, settling for close enoughisms and pointing the finger to other people. 
We pray that you would forgive us in light of the blood of Christ. And that we would live in that power. It's for freedom that we've been set free. Give us the grace to walk in it well. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.